Hello and welcome to the UIC podcast. Thank you. Uh, for our for our listeners and viewers, can you say your name and where you work? Um, so my name is Ashley Howard, and I'm an associate professor at Concordia University, which is located in Montreal, Canada. Great. And what do you do there? Um, so I'm an associate professor, which means that um, my job is split into three components. Um, 30% is research, 30% is teaching, and 30% is service to the university and to the greater um, chemistry and scientific community. And um, specifically, I'm an inorganic materials chemist. Um, so I work on making new uh, materials, inorganic materials, uh, for wide-ranging applications, um, things like wastewater treatment, nuclear wastewater treatment, the detoxification of chemical warfare agents, um, drug delivery, sensing, uh, bioimaging, x-ray detection, kind of you name it, we, we work on a lot of different applications of our material. That is amazing. So with the materials that you're making, do you have to have samples of nuclear wastewater in your lab? So we do get, we, we mostly make um, samples ourselves that are okay. not actually radioactive. Okay. So we make the samples up with all the same components that we know is contained in the nuclear waste, okay. um, but with the elements in the non-radioactive form. Okay. So much safer and sure. much easier to work with, but they have all of the same um, reactivity in terms of the way they would interact with our materials or in terms of the way we would absorb them or degrade them. They have mostly the same reactivity in that sense. It's just that they're they're not radioactive. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, and then what about the chemical warfare agents? Yeah, so that's a good question too. So we also do not work with real chemical warfare agents in our lab at Concordia. Although in the past, I have collaborated with researchers um, at the US Army labs, where they have actually tested our materials with real chemical warfare agents in their labs um, down uh, just outside of Washington. Um, but in our lab, we use a simulant molecules. So these are molecules that look very similar to the real chemical warfare agents. They might just have one atom that's different, um, but they have, uh, and they have similar reactivity in that, you know, if we're able to make a material that can detoxify or degrade the simulant, then we're pretty sure it will work the same way on the real agent. Um, but they're much safer and easier to handle. So there's still, there's always some toxicity associated with them, of course, much like any chemical we work with in the lab, but um, not the same degree of toxicity or danger that's associated with the real agents. That is really, really cool. And it sounds like it's much safer for you and everyone else in the lab. <laughs> yes, definitely. Much, much safer uh, to work with the simulants or to work with kind of simulated solutions of nuclear waste. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have a, a cell explode and get nuclear wastewater on your clothes. Exactly. <laughs> um, so are you, what, what are you working on in your lab right now? Um, so that's a good question. So right now there are 10 graduate students in my lab. So that's seven PhD students and seven master's students. And every student has their own unique projects. Um, and so because of that, there are 
10 different things I could tell you about. Um, okay. But a lot of what we do is materials discovery. So we work a lot on making new materials and specifically the materials are metal organic frameworks or MOFs. And so my students, all, all 10 of them, no matter what project they're working on, they spend a lot of time designing and trying to synthesize these new materials with properties that we we design into them that we hypothesize will be useful for whatever their end goal is. Um, yeah. So in a lot of cases, their end goal is catalysis. So um, to catalytically degrade, like I said, um, chemical warfare agents or to catalytically degrade different harmful contaminants in water. Um, some of their end goals is would be adsorption of different contaminants, either from water or from air. So it could be air pollutants as well. Um, some of their end goals are water harvesting applications. So also absorbing um, water from the air so that we can harvest water in dry or in humid conditions and then use that water, you know, for, for drinking water. To that is so cool. Yeah, basically anything you can imagine a sponge being used for, these are like molecular sponges, right? So anything you can imagine a sponge being used for, we, we try to use um, our materials for that. That is so neat. Yeah. And now are these materials, are they manufactured at the university as well? Or are they just designed there? We we design them and we do synthesize them, but in our labs at Concordia, because we're academic research labs, we typically make them on a small scale. So we make uh -huh. like 30 to 100 milligrams of materials. Okay. That's like that's like a maximum of 0.1 gram of material, right? So mm -hmm. like less than a sugar cube sure. worth worth of moth basically um that's that's the scale we typically make them on um because it's fundamental research but there are um companies out there making them on a much larger scale like kilogram and ton scale um including Numat technologies which is actually in skokie illinois so i think oh that's, that's right by us yeah yeah and um and basf um which has different locations in a lot of places mostly in germany um, and also Svante, which is a company in Canada. Um, so there are companies making them on a much larger scale, but typically at the university, um, we do things on a much smaller scale. It's more cost effective and, and more environmentally friendly to do discovery research on that scale. Too. Sure. So you guys would do proof of concept and then uh, you have anybody else replicate your experiments? Because I know with the uh, scientific process you want replication <laughs> yeah that's a really good question so um usually we first start by just making sure we can replicate the experiment within our own lab and within our okay. own team right so one student will run an experiment or maybe discover a new moth discover a new synthetic procedure and then some of the other students in the lab will try to replicate that just by something that's written down on a piece of paper not with yeah. the actual student helping them right um, and then we normally get some sort of external uh, validation through collaborators either academic collaborators or industrial collaborators who will also try to make the same materials that we make in their own labs and they'll give us feedback on how that went um, or sometimes it's not even collaborators but we'll see people citing our research and saying that they used our procedures so cool. then we'll We'll know that it works in another yeah. 
Um, so yes, reproducibility and that sort of validation is, is definitely important. That is always so exciting when you get some input out of left field saying, oh, hey, we used their stuff and it totally worked. Yeah, it's really exciting, especially if it's researchers that you maybe know or you've heard of, but you've never actually met them. And then you find sure. out that they've been reading your work and they're they're using your procedures or your methods to, to do something. It's really exciting for me and for the students that develop the procedures. Too. Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm still new to this whole sphere, but I'm getting academic papers popping up showing when our machines get used by different uh, scientists. And it is so cool seeing our stuff being used in Antarctica or being used in um, coal powered or coal powered plants in China. And they're measuring the carbon and all sorts of other stuff in the pot ash at the bottom of that. And then you've got people who are pruning guava trees and then taking the prune waste, just extra limbs, turning them into pellets, and then examining how effective and clean those are as an energy source. And our stuff gets used for all of that, which is so cool to me because it's still new to me. Yeah, that's awesome. It's also cool to think that you like designed a piece of equipment and now people are finding all these uses for it that you probably didn't even think about or couldn't have even yeah. imagined, right? Yeah, yeah. which is great. Um, so have you, do you have an example of when that's happened to you personally? Um, that's a good question. Something specific. I mean, um, in terms of my, my research group right now, I mean, we even, we're, we're designing and discovering really new materials, right? Like things that have never been made before, including like new building blocks for these Ooh. materials that have never even been made. So when we see other people in academia even just studying those types of materials it makes us uh really excited because they're so new and there's so much potential and we haven't even unlocked like a fraction of their potential yet right so um that's kind of more maybe on the fundamental science side of things um but when i was uh, a postdoc i worked uh with a large team of researchers at northwestern university oh. um and one of the things we worked on there which is which is why i work on it now as well was uh, designing new moths for the detoxification of nerve agents specifically. Um, and now Numat Technologies, which is the company that's associated with that research, has been um, making army suits and gas masks with these moths that like I wow. worked with and other members of my team worked with at Northwestern at the time. And they're actually in real U.S. Army suits now. Like there's prototypes. You can see the soldiers have like been wearing them and and testing them on on like simulated battlefields or whatever. It's, it's right. very cool to see. That is so neat. It's uh, I mean, that's a a really difficult theater to think about. But to know that the stuff that you're making is at least in theory saving some people's lives is really cool. Yeah, I think that that's really exciting. And to see it actually go from fundamental research to something applied, I mean, that's something that can take, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes, right? And and that's what I hope for a lot of the materials that we're making in my group at Concordia now is that somewhere, you know, maybe decades from now, we actually see them being applied in, in real applications. But um, 
to see those materials that I was working with, like I said, at Northwestern, even just uh, 10 years ago being applied now is, is so cool. Did, uh, did fifth grade Ashley ever imagine her stuff would be discovered and then put out in the world for use? Uh, definitely not. No, no? <laughs> no. I mean, when, when I was younger, I definitely, I always liked science. I used to love doing like science fair projects. Um, I was definitely a, a big nerd. <laughs> um, but I don't think, I think I was always just interested. Like I was always curious and interested more in like fundamental science and understanding how stuff works. Mm. I was never really back then thinking about like, doing research or using science to like improve materials or improve processes or to improve people's lives i think back then i never made that that connection sure do you remember what got you interested in science or was it just always an innate curiosity um i think well it was partially an innate curiosity i think but i think it was just really working on um science fair projects with my parents when i was younger so my parents used to help me quite a bit with my science fair projects neither one of them uh were scientists although um my dad did work at dow chemical um mm. but but he was in sales um so not he's not a scientist but he had a lot of friends who were chemists or scientists because they did still work together right and so i'm sure he must have absorbed some information yeah exactly he absorbed some of that information and often actually he would consult like one of his friends who was a chemist about like what should the science fair project be oh, right so I, I always had these like really cool kind of i guess advanced science projects because of that right and, so, and cool. so um i got to learn a lot of you know different things and i always really enjoyed that and i think that's where where my interest in science started and then um but at that point, I wasn't sure that chemistry was my biggest interest. I was just interested in science in general. And then in my first year of undergrad, I had a really, really, really good chemistry professor. And I think that's when I decided to kind of narrow my scientific focus into chemistry. Were you undeclared as an undergrad? Did you not have a major picked out? Yeah, in my first year, I started in just the general, it was called medical sciences program. Okay. So you basically take um, first year biology, chemistry, physics, psychology, calculus, like just first year science, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then um, after that, you pick what you want to specialize in. Cool. Now, was chemistry something that really grabbed your interest or were you like, this is easier for me than everything else yeah that's a good question i think it was a little bit of both for sure yeah. i mean it was something that like i found easier to understand i found easier to grasp i found like to me everything about first year chemistry felt very logical and that i could like work through problems logically without having to memorize a ton of stuff mm -hmm. um and you know because of that it was definitely the class that i got higher grades in and all that so sure. only partially that it just maybe was easier for me and then partially i just thought it was really cool how'd you do once you got to organic chem <laughs> that's a good question so um there's a reason why i'm an inorganic <laughs> and it's because uh i was never very strong at organic chemistry it's hard it's hard it's hard and i can understand why so many people um 
you know, say that it's one of the hardest courses they've taken in undergrad and, you know, especially really hard for people going into medicine and, and all of that. Right. But um, I always still really liked it and yeah. you know, I did OK in it, but um, I, I found it difficult, all the reaction mechanisms and and also trying to memorize named reactions. All those things was a little bit tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to work through things logically versus memorization, it's two different compartments of the brain that all don't always get the same amount of attention. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you're obviously researching some really cool stuff right now. Um, does that count as your service to the university? No, it doesn't actually. So okay. um, yeah, that's a good question. As I said at the beginning, um, most professors um, at most institutions, although it might vary depending if you're at like a extremely research intensive institution versus a very teaching extensive institution, the, the percentages will vary. But most researchers, especially in Canada, mm -hmm. um, the job is divided into thirds. So it's 30% research, 30% teaching, and 30% service. And so the 30% research is kind of what we've we've talked about so far. Um, but the 30% service is something totally different. So it's, um, for example, some of the service that I do is reviewing all of the potential grad student candidate applications that come into our department. Oh, right. Boy. So like over the last uh, few years, I've probably reviewed somewhere slightly over 100 applications from potential grad student applicants from all around the world. Yeah. Um, and my job is to, first of all, look at their grades and also um, compare because, you know, people in in different countries, the grading systems are different. So sure. So comparing that and then looking at their research experience and oh, uh, their CV and reading their statement of purpose and basically deciding who gets to be admitted into our graduate program versus who doesn't. That's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely not. And that's one thing that um, a lot of professors have to do, these, this type of service. That's just one example. Yeah. Um, another example would be like hiring other like new professors, right? Okay. So. Um, when we have a call for a new professor in our department or sometimes i work i have to contribute service to other departments too so it might even be in physics or biology or chemical engineering we have to look over around 200 um, applications from people you know who want to be a professor in that department and who have done amazing things with their career right they've done a phd a postdoc they've done tons of research and we have to narrow that down and just pick one person so. yeah that also tough yeah. but I, I you know i do you feel less bad choosing one professor over another than admitting one student over another yes well yeah, yeah you know both of it's hard actually because both of those people in their own separate ways have worked really hard to get to the stage that they're at That's right true. That's and true. both of those people are going to be disappointed in the outcome if the answer is no right so yeah. it might actually be kind of an equal, an equal gosh that is rough well yeah i mean it's a difficult task but it's definitely a service <laughs> yeah um 
So what classes are you teaching? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. So I teach, um, I always teach chemistry 241, which is an inorganic chemistry one course. Okay. So it's the first level of inorganic chemistry that students uh, will ever see at, at any level, actually, because inorganic chemistry is not taught in high school or uh, below right. below the university level. Um, so that course, we teach all about basically all the elements on the periodic table, except for carbon and hydrogen. Oh. <laughs> so car carbon and hydrogen, that's those are organic compounds, but yeah. every other element on the periodic table, that's an inorganic compound, right? So really? Yeah. <laughs> so even like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I'm thinking about the building blocks of life. And I think carbon, hydrogen, but then like nitrogen, oxygen, yes. phosphorus, phosphorus and sulfur. Yeah. Yeah, those are inorganic compounds. Really? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we teach all about the chemistry of those compounds. We do focus quite heavily on the transition metals. So metal-based okay. materials tend to be a heavy focus in uh, first-year inorganic chemistry courses. So we do uh -huh. that, but, but yeah. Um, that's the main course I teach. And then I teach upper level courses as well. So um, I teach courses that are cross listed between 400 and 600 level. So that's last year of undergrad and first year of grad school. So the students are mixed in the same um, class. Okay. And I teach one on the topic of porous materials because that's what I work with metal organic right. frameworks are porous materials. And then I teach another one on the topic of green chemistry um, okay. because I think that that's really important to be teaching our students. And it's something that's not in a lot of undergraduate curriculums right now, although it's starting to become more popular. Can you define green chemistry? Ah, yeah, so <laughs> green chemistry um, is more of a philosophy than a okay. chemistry. Okay. So it's a way of thinking about chemistry yeah. to make things more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, and to okay. make sure that we're not harming the environment in the process of doing chemistry. Sure. And also, in it also is to make things inherently safer, right? So that yeah. workers are also safer and, and people living around chemical plants can yeah. feel safer as well. Okay, so yeah, that's what i first went to when i thought green chemistry but then when i get customers talking about black liquors i'm like well i know that that's not a really dark whiskey it's something <laughs> different i would have guessed that it was a really dark whiskey so. no no it's it's a very specific um it's a very specific fluid that i don't know enough about but i know it's not it's not like a a consumable you pull off the shelf okay, interesting yeah so uh there's a lot that i need to learn so if you were to recommend to someone who is curious to maybe think about going back to school for chemistry how what sort of resources would you direct them to to kind of get uh, their feet wet or start getting up to speed for when they do apply as an undergrad for somewhere? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, nowadays, there you can find pretty much everything online, and you uh -huh. can find excellent um, online resources, like even online lectures from um, 
professors at universities all over the world, a lot of those are open access now. Yeah. Um, you can find a lot of open access um, textbooks as well. Um, so I would just recommend um, not any specific resource per se, but I would just recommend like even going on YouTube and looking sure. at lectures, just making sure they're from reputable chemists and, uh -huh. from, you know, look up their background, make sure they have a PhD in chemistry or that they teach at a university or a college or something. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, anything they could, cause that could be, you could watch, you know, fundamental chemistry lectures, or you could watch lectures on of chemists talking about their research at a, at a higher level, you know, things to just get you interested in chemistry. I think any yeah. of that would be good preparation for, to see if you're interested, passionate about it. And if, uh, if you're, if it's for you. I have heard that MIT has a lot of their undergrad courses just out there and available. Yeah, I've so, heard that too. And you know, I've never looked to see, there, there must be, they must have some open access chemistry lectures as well, but I've never actually looked uh, Well, you, you sound a little busy, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. But uh, <laughs> when I was applying for school, uh, chemistry it was i had two paths to go and chemistry was one of them and uh, i did not choose the chemistry path so i haven't done any real chemistry learning in all almost 20 years so wow, okay. i'm going to i i think i might dive back in just to be able to better educate myself about everything that uic does and the people that i'm talking to because i love being able to hear what you have going on and your moths and your research and your students but um i wonder if i can ask better questions if i'm better informed at the same time my level of ignorance might be just right for hitting a wider audience i was gonna say sometimes it's good to ask I don't know, like simpler questions or bigger picture questions. Um, I think oftentimes uh, professors and researchers also just discuss a lot like amongst themselves or within an academic community. It's also good for us to practice talking about our research on, you know, a bigger picture level and without so much detail, but with still being able to communicate what we're doing. Well, that brings up a good question because I know right now is a time where a lot of folks are applying for or waiting for their grants to come in. The the grants that you have to write, the people who are reading these and releasing these grants, are they typically people who are uh, deep within your field or are they someone who might not have any knowledge of your field? Yeah, that's a good question too. It actually, it varies quite a bit. So, so the answer to your question is, is that it can be both essentially. So it depends kind of what agency you're applying to or what specific program you're applying to. Um, oftentimes grants get sent out to external reviewers. So not necessarily people working at the government agency or whatever um, funding body, but to external reviewers. And usually the the agencies try to pick external reviewers that are within the field right okay. so usually when i submit a grant they will try to submit it to external reviewers so professors or researchers in industry who are working on MOFs, right okay like, but usually they'll try to do but then but 
but sometimes they won't. Sometimes the external reviewers could be any scientist that has any sort of working knowledge of chemistry, right? Okay. Um, and then the agency or the committee at the agency or whatever will take all those external review reports. Usually there's two, anywhere from two to maybe upwards of five or six. Yeah. And they will read these external reports and then decide um, whether you deserve funding or not. So okay. oftentimes the people um, making the final decision are not in your field. Okay. Um, usually they have some sort of science background, but not necessarily okay. in your field. Um, but they just read these external reviewer reports um, and, and make a decision based on that. So what was your most recent grant? request revolving around ah that's a good question um i've written so many grants this term that i'm trying <laughs> oh, to <boy. laughs> i'm trying to think of which one i think this term is a record for me i think i've submitted 11 grant proposals which holy cow usually usually each term i submit a maximum of two but um this term i'm not teaching which is very very rare for me okay. um so i decided to try to do as many grant proposals as possible so sure i'm trying to think so one of the ones that i just recently submitted so in in canada we have a lot of funding programs for academic researchers to work with industrial researchers. That's like a big push right now by our federal government funding agency, right? So they want, um, instead of um, funding fundamental science research, they want, which they still do some of, but arguably they should do more. Um, but they, they're interested in um, funding really applied researcher, research. So academic researchers, partnering with industrial companies. So um, recently I submitted a grant application where it was six professors in total um, collaborating with two companies here in Quebec. Um, and they're specifically companies that are in the mining industry. So sure. hydro, hydro metallurgy and like, so they do things like how, like the things that they're interested in is how to, first of all, extract elements from the minerals, you know, the way that they're found in the environment. Uh -huh. And then once you extract those elements from those minerals, also how to separate them from each other to get like pure versions of those elements, right? Sure. Um, so one of the grant proposals I submitted recently, um, like I said, six professors in two companies, some chemists, some chemical engineers, and we're trying to use, well, metal organic frameworks, the materials I work with, um, uh -huh. but also lots of different um, processes and methods that have been developed by the other professors on the um, application yeah. to try to find new ways to separate those different elements from each other that are more sustainable, ideally, because okay. um, right now the methods tend to use a lot of acid, they use a lot of solvent, they produce a lot of waste, and yeah. that waste is, you know, pretty nasty waste if you think about it being organic solvent and acids and stuff. So yeah. trying to find more sustainable ways to do that. Um. Now, this brings me back to our conversation earlier about the academic papers. And you're like, wow, I never thought about stuff being used that way. Is this, are these mining companies and this project, is this what you had in mind for the UIC kilometer? <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, okay. So this, I should have talked about that one, actually. So no, I mean, don't worry about it. I'm not here to push UIC. I want to learn about you. 
But if you're willing to talk about uh, UIC, then by all means, go right ahead. I like it. I like the mug. Um, no, definitely. So I should talk about that project too, because I also submitted that grant proposal, uh, but that one was submitted in the summer. So just before this term. So it's not quite as fresh in my mind, but sure. um, that is also an academic industry partnership. So okay. it's with a company in Quebec called Deep Sky. Um, mm -hmm. And Deep Sky is a company, they're pretty new actually, but they're trying to basically revolutionize the carbon capture industry. So I think, uh, I'm sure I won't do it complete justice. Somebody from Deep Sky should really be the one saying this, but I I'll think- have to reach out. <laughs> Yeah, you should. I think that they, um, their main thing is that they believe that research on carbon capture and basically research in regards to fighting climate change and reversing the global increases in temperature that we see is moving too slowly. Mm -hmm. You know, that, you know, we've made, of course, a lot of progress, but we're also getting closer and closer to what some people would call doomsday, right? Where the planet is actually no longer going to be sustainable for us to live, right? So their goal is to increase the speed at which carbon capture research is conducted. So they reach out to, they have a huge network of academic researchers, industrial researchers, and they bring people together, bring teams together um, to share their resources and their knowledge, you know, better than scientists are already currently doing that. And they provide funding, of course, to do that. Um, so that we can try to accelerate this carbon capture research. And so um, part of what I'm working on um, with Deep Sky is using MOFs for carbon capture. And then of mm -hmm. course, if we're gonna use MOFs for carbon capture and we're gonna test them in my lab, like I said, in my lab, we do small scale stuff and we make simulated solutions or simulated um, environments. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna need to measure the carbon <laughs> in our samples and yeah. see how much carbon we take up versus how much carbon gets left behind. And sure. that's where that's where I was thinking about what type of instrument we would need to be able to do that. And I was just Googling um, total inorganic carbon analyzer, right. <laughs> seeing what companies provide it. And, and that's when I found UIC and wow. it seemed like uh, the instrument does everything we need. So. Yeah, that's uh that is awesome. And that provides me with a lot of great information too. Um, so, cause we're here getting into nuts and bolts about stuff. How much does bench space matter to you when you're working in the lab? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> the question behind the question is how, how much do you want our machines to shrink? Or is that like not really a huge concern? It's definitely a consideration, but like okay. obviously within reasonable limitations, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously lab space is always precious. Mm -hmm. um, what professors, I think, especially professors in chemistry, but probably any scientist will always tell you is that universities never have enough space and of researchers course. never have enough space and people yeah. are always fighting and arguing about space, right? And yeah. it's, it's, like kind of universal everywhere, right? Yes. Um, and it's definitely true because I'm I'm a fairly new faculty member at Concordia. Like I've been there for six years now. 
-hmm. And even in those six years, you know, I was given what at the time was considered, you know, a pretty big space, right? Uh -huh. um, but in those six years, we have really filled up that space, right? We yeah. have, you know, 10 students, all of their equipment and supplies, all of the equipment we need to run our group. Um, suddenly the, the bench space all gets taken up, right? So um, uh -huh. it's important. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if there is a piece of equipment that does absolutely everything you need and it's perfect and it has all the specs you want, yeah. but it's a little big, I don't think that that's going to prevent you from buying it. I don't think it's going to be the one thing that prevents you, but okay. I think if it's, if it's smaller, it's a bonus. Okay. Yeah. yeah we were, uh, we were doing R and D on a new model and like the titration of the cell just it was over titrating we're like is it a heat issue is it from the electronics inside and i just wanted to keep saying like can we go a little bigger with the case <laughs> can we just a little bit bigger but we've got <laughs> some really smart guys who have figured it out so uh yeah it's but that project is on hold and it's exciting for when that will come around but yeah it just got me thinking like <laughs> how big can we go to make make some of these things easier yeah i mean yeah it's a good question i think there's you know there's a limit obviously but there's right. it also needs there's also a limit where size can't limit you know accuracy or other things like that. yeah yeah i um i interviewed a couple of oceanographers about a month ago and just hearing about living on one of these ships for like a week or two and with you know you've got undergrads grad students postdocs plus the actual researchers plus the ship crew and like you're working all day it sounds that sounds like a, a very tight space oh for sure and and they definitely you know they need like a lot of different portable instruments too like their mm -hmm. their criteria are going to be very different than than most of the rest of us but yeah, yeah I always think that's really cool too. I'd love to do some research on a ship. I got to find some excuse to do that. <laughs> uh, well, maybe uh, maybe I can try and hook you up with the folks I interviewed with because they seem so welcoming and so friendly. Um, you know, maybe there's a maybe there's a application for a moth in seawater. You know, microplastics yeah. maybe. Yeah, I mean, there could be. There definitely could be. I mean, microplastics. The way I tend to think of it, but I might have a naive understanding, but you know, they're microplastics or so they're micro sized. So they're, they're kind of big, right? And the, and the pores in our moths, you know, the pores or the holes in our sponges, they're like three nanometers. Uh -huh. size is kind of like the biggest. So, yeah. think, you know, microplastics aren't going to fit inside the tiny pores in our materials. I think you need like bigger pore materials than the, than the types of stuff I'm making, but I don't know. I mean, I'd like to talk to people who actually are experts in that and see maybe you never know. I'm always surprised by the the things that moths can actually do when you start talking to people who are experts in the application side. Well, yeah, I'll give you their info. I mean, they invited me out on a cruise next October and I'm like, absolutely. I would love to go check it out. <laughs> That's so cool. Where are you going? Right. Uh, Bermuda. <laughs> what? Yeah, in October. You know, can't you can't beat that. That's so fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, we'll see. It's, I would I would very much hope that all of this follows through and gets to continue. Um, 
but it was an extremely generous offer and I would go down there with the camera and film everything that was going on and then also get my hands dirty and pull up some chains and uh extra i mean i don't know if i would want to handle any of the samples but you know i'd be happy to pull up cable and chain and do all the heavy lifting that the undergrads have to do that's so cool that would be a really awesome experience though. yeah um so what are some things that students get really excited about in your lab Oh, that's a good question. So it, it varies a lot. So there are some students who get really excited about, you know, the fundamental chemistry, right? So if they, the moment they make a new material, right, they get super excited. They see the crystals under a microscope, right? And you can see like crystals, you know, have this perfect morphology and they look, they look beautiful under a microscope or under a scanning electron microscope. And so I think one of the things my students can, uh, some of them get really excited about is when they finally make this material that they've been, you know, they, we hypothesized it, we designed it, we, we know what we want, but we don't know exactly how to synthesize it yet, right? And some of them, it'll take 500, 600 reactions oh. that they have to put together to be able to make it. And so imagine, you know, you've spent months putting together these 500 and 600 reactions and then one day you you put that sample under a microscope and you see the exact morphology of the crystal you want i think that's super exciting i know that that was always really exciting for me and i know that students get excited about that too um can you we, share any of those images or is that all like proprietary no no i could share some of those okay great you. i think it would be cool to have the uh, crystalline shape be the cover for this podcast interview for sure yeah let's do it i will i will definitely send you one uh remind me in case i forget i have a bad memory so, okay. so 500 <laughs> reactions is it just tweaking the levels of everything to get there exactly yeah it's Oof. like like tweaking the parameters so it's like the solvent the temperature the time the ph sometimes like little additives um sometimes even the amount of time that it reacts right some some reactions only take a few hours, some take a few days. Um, so it's like systematically tuning all those parameters until you get the get the exact ones you need to make the material we're looking for. That is awesome. And then you've got to be excited when they're excited. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, one of the most exciting things is when somebody in my group makes a new moth, like I can't even describe how excited I get about that. It's like, it's crazy. It's like I just won the lottery, you know? Sure. Um, because it's, first of all, it's cool to see their excitement, but also I just think it's, it's such a cool thing in chemistry to make like a molecule that's new that nobody's ever made before. Like, think about how crazy that is and how people have been working in chemistry for like, you know, hundreds of years or, or even more, depending on how far you want to go back in history. Sure. But, but, um, and you still to this day can make like new compounds or molecules that nobody's ever made before. That's so cool. So uh, that has to be extremely rewarding. Can you think of any one particular moment that has been like the most rewarding experience of your career? Ooh, that's so hard to say. All right. Um, well, if, if that's too hard, can you think of one of the most challenging experiences? Ah, um, so I think what's most challenging, maybe it's not 
um, exactly the way that you were, maybe thought the question would go. But one of the most challenging things for me um, as a professor and as it relates to mentoring students is like knowing the best way to mentor students and like, you know, what the expectation should be sort of, or, you know, how I can push them to be the best scientists that they can be, but without pushing them beyond some like, you know, crazy boundary that they're overworked or that they're burning out or whatever, right? And it's like, it's finding that balance that I think is extremely hard as a as a mentor or as a professor. Um, because of course we want our students to be the best, right? And we want our students to be super successful. Like we want them to come out of our program and out of our research group, like knowing everything they can possibly know and having like a network of people who they've already, you know, met and, and can work with once they leave our institution and our group. And, and we want them to have, you know, accomplishments on their CV, like, like papers and show that they've gone to conferences and presented stuff. And we, we want them to be the best, but at the same time, like <laughs> you have to be realistic, right? We, we also don't want them to have to work like, 80 hours a week to be able to yeah. accomplish those things, right? And to get totally burnt out and, and exhausted by it. But I think as a as a PI, it's always about finding like the balance. Like you want to push people and encourage people to be the best, but not overdo it. And, and it's hard to find that balance, especially because that balance is different for every single person. Sure. And so, you know, in addition to being a scientist, you know, we have to be like a social scientist as well. Sure. Right? Yeah. Well, if uh, any of them ever need practice prepping for a presentation, shoot them over to the UIC podcast and uh, I'd true. happily talk to them. That's true. I'm sure some of them would love to do that. Um, so what what are you researching right now that you're most excited about? Oh, that's tough to pick like the thing I'm most excited about. Oh, I, a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the projects I'm currently most excited about, maybe just because it's fresh on my mind, because I was just talking to one of my students this morning, is we're trying to make um, new flexible metal organic frameworks. So all MOFs are flexible in some way. You know, you can think of a porous material with a bunch of holes in it. Like it's going to have some degree of flexibility, right? But you can design MOFs to be even more flexible, right? Where you can design the materials such that they have like a closed pore form and an open pore form where when they're exposed to different guest molecules or different external stimuli like temperature or pressure or maybe exposure to carbon dioxide for carbon capture purposes, that maybe the moth has closed pores, but then it sees carbon dioxide and the pores open up. And all of a Whoa. sudden, it flexes and it absorbs like a very high amount of carbon dioxide, but only does that sort of flexing in the presence of that one guest, right? So it's selective for only absorbing one thing. And so um, that's probably one of the projects I'm most excited about right now because my student actually just this morning showed me some data that suggests she may have made a new metal organic framework. Cool. Um, we, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but it looks like it is. And it looks like it should be really good for um, gas separations because of potential flexibility. Um, now, again, 
not a scientist, just a, a enthusiast and a sci-fi writer on the side. Could you take a material like this and make grates out of it and then stack those grates in some sort of exhaust flume and then it would be capturing a lot or is that totally inefficient and ridiculous no, i think i think what you're describing can totally be done i mean i think that is what some people are doing i mean um svante i don't know if you ever heard of svante they're they're a company in canada right now that's using moths for carbon capture yeah. And they've started making the reactors basically to be able to do that. And, you know, of course, a lot of engineering goes into this, too. And that's also beyond my understanding of, of how things work. But um, they've made these kind of cool, like, I guess you would almost call them plates that they put mm -hmm. the moss on in these reactors for carbon capture. It's, it's not yeah. so different from what you just described, I don't think. Cool. Yeah, awesome. so it's possible. <laughs> um, you do you like to explore the ideas of uh application for these things uh i do yeah so i mean i always have to um you know make sure i know my own limitations right so uh -huh. so which i think is important for all scientists okay. so my my expertise is like definitely on the design and synthesis of new materials characterizing them and maybe doing like the most basic application testing, right? Like just sure. to see, does the material absorb this or does it sense this or can it separate these two gases? Like we can definitely do those things, right? Yeah. But, but when it comes to actually truly applying a material, there's so much more that goes into it, right? Like yeah. materials, materials performance, which is what we do, and synthesis and performance is of course a very big aspect, but then there's so much else, right? So there's process chemists that have to work on ways to scale up the synthesis of the materials. And then there's engineers that have to work on ways to formulate the materials. Like sometimes you pack them into, you know, little cubes or or discs or whatever. That's that's all done by engineers. And then there's, of course, people making like the reactors or whatever for the process that you need. Um, there's a lot that goes into all of that. So I always make sure that I'm partnering with people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I partner with a lot of people in industry, right? And a lot of our funding comes from industrial partners in some way, or from, like I said, the Canadian government will also support partnerships like that. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly very interested in the applications and I love seeing our materials being applied for something or being tested for something at like a bigger scale, right? Um, but I never want to oversell that, you know, I'm not an expert in any of those applications, really. I just, I'm an expert in the materials design and, and testing. Well, I am an expert in being wrong and getting rejected. So I like throwing wild ideas all over the place and being told, no, you can't do that. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. I'm like, okay, cool, it doesn't bother me. I don't know, having wild ideas is good though, because all you need is one wild idea that ends up being a really good idea, right? Right, right. <laughs> um so what are your hopes for like the future of your research and your moths yeah that's a good question so i mean i think my hope is that well first that we continue to you know do a lot of fundamental research and that we hopefully get supported by that both in terms of funding but also in terms of the academic community so you know discovering new materials, designing new materials, um, testing them 
in the ways that we can test them in our labs at Concordia. I think that's a lot of um, what I hope for kind of on the most basic level and, and that the students can continue to learn like all the different transferable skills that they can learn through doing that type of fundamental research. Um, but I think, you know, the pie in the sky sort of dream goal is that these materials that we're making in my lab at Concordia, you know, that we're the first ones to have ever made them and we're the ones putting them out there in the literature and in patents and whatever, that one day somebody finds an application for them that is amazing, you know, and that helps people in some way, whether it be by like cleaning up the environment or protecting soldiers or, um, yeah, or just making an industrial process more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, anything like that. I mean, that would be that would be the dream goal. And like I said, in, in most of chemistry, that takes like decades to kind of realize that, right? But hopefully that's that's what happens. Well, it sounds like you're already getting some of that with your Northwestern research. Yeah, definitely, which is really exciting. I mean, that's a really amazing team. They're one of the best MOF research groups in the world, if not the best. Maybe I'm a little bit biased. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so they, um, they're doing really impressive stuff and they're they're managing to accelerate that time between fundamental research and applied research and it's it's really cool that's awesome well i think uh i think that everything that you had just described is really exciting and uh, it's these moths sound so cool <laughs> i'm glad you think so yeah glad you like them absolutely um well what uh where can people learn more about you your work if if you had a high school student who is interested in reaching out and picking your brain or um you know a, a scientific publication or a journal or whatever it was like oh wow I'd, I'd love to learn more about this where can they how can they get a hold of you Sure, that's a good question. So there's a few different things they can do. So first, they could even just look up my name on YouTube. I have like four to six kind of like videos or video lectures where I describe more about my research. And some of them are even like ones like a lab walkthrough tour where you can also oh. see my lab and see. Awesome. You got to send me a link. We'll put it yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, I could definitely do that. Um, that's that's so that's cool. Those videos are, are useful if you want to learn more about our research and actually see kind of more visuals related to it as well. Yeah. Um, and then you could also go to my website. It's the howarthlab.com. And on there, you'll also find my email where you can email me and contact me directly. Um, but there you can also see all of the students that work in my group. There's photos right. of them and little bios. And also you can see all of our most recent publications. Um, some of our publications, especially most of our most recent ones, are open access. So if you cool. click on the links on the website, you can go directly to our papers. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter or okay. X, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm not on there quite as much as I used to be, but I'm still around. My my Twitter handle is Kem Ashley. <laughs> and so uh, you could follow me there. And sometimes I post updates on like our latest research papers or my students' latest accomplishments, stuff like that. Well, I'll give you a couple follows as soon as we're done. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, great. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners or viewers with before you go back to researching? 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything specific. I mean, maybe just I hope that from listening today, they've learned a little bit about metal organic frameworks and the different types of things they can do. And I hope I've piqued some of their interests and maybe they can do some more research on the subject themselves. And if they're interested in science at any level, they can contact me. I'm always happy to have undergraduates, graduates, postdocs, whatever, working in my lab, and I can teach you everything about moths. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for the conversation this morning. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me.